0: We finished Matthew's Gospel two Sundays ago after a five-plus-year journey through that Gospel, and people have been asking me, what are we going to do next? And uh, what the plan is to do next is to work our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We have, over the years, uh, chosen, I believe strategically, the different books of the New Testament that we wanted to to exposit here and and to grow in our understanding. We began with uh, just really exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. We followed that with our exposition of Romans so that we might come to a really good and deep and profound understanding of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We went from Romans to Matthew because Matthew of the books of the New Testament deals most with the kingdom of God and trying to get a proper understanding of the kingdom of god so why ephesians well of the books of the new testament again if if you were to choose a book that talked about the church you would go to the book of ephesians and i believe that that is really important for us in these days for to have a really good deep and uh, enduring understanding of the church of jesus christ so it will be the book of Ephesians, Lord willing, uh, in the in the uh, fall. But between then and or now, yeah, then and now, we have a, a series called "Living as a Minority Community in a Hostile World." Living as a minority community in a hostile world. I want to speak to you this morning from down here rather than up from behind the pulpit, and there are a number of reasons for that, Um, but uh, not the least of which is it's unusual for me, and this message is an unusual kind of message that is an introduction to this series that we're going to begin. My children, as they were growing up, um, lived in dread, I think, Of their father saying to them, can you meet me in my bedroom? I have some things I need to talk to you about. I think even to this day as adults with their own children, if I were to write to them or call them and say, "Ah, there's something I need to speak to you about, they would probably confess that there's a measure of um, concern. They would quickly flick through their mind, okay, what possibly could I have done? And so to my children, I ask your forgiveness for creating that prohibitive conscience in you. Uh, And so you may be looking at me down here and thinking, okay, oh no, here we go again. Uh, He's down here on the floor and this is going to be one of those kinds of messages. And well, maybe to a certain degree it is. Uh, The topic before us, not just this morning, but over the next 12 weeks, is a topic that has been increasingly growing in my heart and mind and pressing upon me to the place where it um, cannot be restrained any longer. I am compelled to speak to you about the situation for the Church of Jesus Christ in America. And in particular for this church, in the context in which we find ourselves. The events that are happening in this world, and they are, they are progressing with a frightening repeat, or, or speed, are creating an environment in which being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to become an increasingly hazardous occupation. And so I want to talk to you about that, and I want to, I want to lay some groundwork for us as a body of believers to, to prepare ourselves for what may well happen. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, so I don't stand here to, to say, thus says the Lord. I can't speak with that kind of certainty. But I do believe, with all of my heart, that uh, an honest and fair examination of the evidences around us point to the reality that life as we have known it is not going to continue. It is going to change. And so we need to be ready for the changes that that will bring. We need to be ready as believers, as a community of believers, to thrive for the Lord Jesus Christ in a very, very hostile world. So let me begin this morning with a short civics lesson, well, not civics, a history lesson, a short history lesson for Western civilization. How's that? Just a quick overview, and you think that's not impossible for you to do anything quickly, but <laughs> uh, I've got to because I've got a lot more I need to say, but a quick overview of Western civilization. How did we get to where we are? Well, there's much obviously we could talk about. I'm just going to begin with the year AD 312, the year AD 312, and the conversion of Constantine. Constantine, the the uh, former general and then emperor of Rome, experienced a. Uh, a some kind of encounter and i don't want to get into whether it was true and genuine and all of that that doesn't matter the point is that from history looking back 312 is considered the date of the conversion of constantine and the importance of that is that it brought to an end the severe persecutions that the church of jesus christ had been experiencing for the last for 200 years leading up to that so it was a very significant event the conversion of constantine Following that conversion of Constantine and the lessening of persecution, of course, uh, Christianity, which existed uh, in a beleaguered state up to that time, began to, to expand through the empire. Until in the year 8380, the Roman emperor Theodosius was able to proclaim Christianity the only lawful religion of the Roman Empire. So it went from the persecuted minority to the majority religion to which it was illegal and subject to civil penalty for one to fail to profess allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now obviously that doesn't mean all of those people were believers by any stretch. But you can just see the movement and the providence of God that happened across what later became known as Europe. Following that period of time, uh, we had the fall of the Roman Empire. Empire. Rome itself was sacked for the very first time by by the Germanic tribes who had been driven westward by the Huns from Mongolia. And they were driven up against the border of of the Roman Empire and penetrated the border of the Roman Empire and eventually in A.D. 410 sacked the city of Rome. So the great imperial city was subject to looting by these Germanic tribes, the Vandals and the Visigoths and the Goths and so forth from your deep, dark recesses of Western history you may remember. In the year A.D. 476... The Empire of Rome officially fell in that it was the beginning of, of non-Roman emperors. It was the first Germanic king, one from, drawn from those Germanic tribes that inhabited the area that, of course, we now know as more modern Germany, who sat as emperor on the throne in Rome. And so that is officially known as the, as the end of the Western Roman Empire. The fall of the Roman Empire was absolutely traumatic in world history. And following that, the world entered into what is more commonly known as the Dark Ages. It was a period of, of uh, ignorance. It was a period of cultural decline. It was a period of severe economic Uh, difficulties that that descended upon uh, western Europe and it continued for a very very long time in fact the dark ages are officially from the 6th century to the 14th century so that's a very long period of time. it's 800 years of darkness now the Christian church existed it thrived its missionary endeavors proceeded the gospel went out and in uh, in obedience to Matthew chapter 28 to go into the world and to make disciples, and it moved across the empire, stretching all the way as far, of course, as England and eventually Scotland and Ireland. So the gospel continued to thrive even though the world was in this terrible time for centuries. Also during this time was the rise of what is known as feudalism, Feudalism and, and effectively, feudalism means that the, that the vast majority of wealth and land ownership was in, consolidated in the hands of a few individuals, and the rest of the population um, served them as serfs or vassals upon their great estates, looking to these elite, these lords, to watch over and care for their daily needs. And so the world, and again, I'm dealing with, with the Western world, Uh, existed in this uh, time of feudalism, which operated right up until the 15th century. In all of this darkness, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ was uh, lost in general sense. It was obviously not totally lost, but it went underground, like a river going underground. It later burst forth in the late 15th century and into the 16th century, into what we know as the Reformation, where the rediscovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and, and rediscovered by Luther and, and uh, articulated by Calvin and Zwingli and others. And so it was this tremendous bursting forth of light, and it, and it made a profound impact upon a very, very dark world. And it laid, particularly the Calvinism of John Calvin, laid the foundations for future Western governments. Most particularly for the Western government that was to be established in the new world known to you and I as America where in 1620 the pilgrims arrived here and began to establish their homeland, and eventually, of course, the establishment, uh, following the the separation from England, and the establishment of, of the American experiment, in which there are essentially three branches of government, There is the legislative branch, there is the executive branch, and there's the judicial branch. And they were designed that way to provide balance to one another because the founders were absolutely uh, committed to the reality of the depravity of humanity and that there needed to be these things in place in order to, to keep evil under control. And you know your American history, and I'm not going to recount that for you. But I am going to observe for you that in the 19th century, in fact, in the year 1859, a book was released by a British scientist, and the title of that was a short title known to you as The Origin of the Species, Charles Darwin. Darwin. Darwin, propounding his theory of evolution, which was essentially naturalism, which boiled down, was a denial of theism, took the world by storm. And it was not just a a statement of of biological origins, but but those notions, those ideas, quickly moved into all areas of life. It infected religion, it, it infected politics, it, it infected philosophy, it infected morality. For cutting oneself loose from your Creator allows you now to define the world as you want to define it, and to define morality as the majority want to define it. There is no transcendent law that sits above you, no value system outside of you. And so the implications have been absolutely profound. On January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States, in convoluted reasoning, arguing from the 14th Amendment and the Establishment Clause, or excuse me, not the Establishment Clause, but the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, found, and, and I would say Created out of nothing a right to abortion. In the case known as Roe v. Wade in 1973, that's over 40 years ago, more than a lifetime, more than a generation ago. Since that time, millions of children have been sacrificed to the God of Darwin and it is to our shame as a nation there is blood on all of our hands as a nation and the holocaust continues and beloved i believe it will continue until the lord stops it because it is nothing more than the than the expression of a of a civilization cut loose from god we entered the culture wars the culture wars. Remember the moral majority? Jerry Falwell and all of that. And, and all of these efforts to elect the right person into, into office, the right president. And if we get the right president, then, then we're going to get the right laws and we're going to get the right morality. And here we are more than 40 years later and it, we are in a worse position than we were then. A year ago, June the 15th of 2015, the Supreme Court again arguing from the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, and again, arguing in the the same fallacious way as R.V. Wade, established under the Obergefell decision the right for homosexual marriage. It became the law of the land. Interestingly, during the oral arguments before the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General of the United States, arguing in favor of the Obergefell decision, was asked by Chief, or Justice Alito uh, regarding how same-sex marriage might affect religious liberty in America. And he said, and I quote, it's going to be an issue, close quote. It's going to be an issue. We are a year later, and it is indeed an issue. It is an issue. Bakers and photographers have quickly found it's an issue, as they have been pursued, legally harassed, we might say, by the state with regard to to their Christian convictions regarding participation in marriages that they know the Bible forbids. Recently, the Iowa Civil Rights Commission entered into the fray with a, with a brochure talking about transgender bathrooms and saying that churches that conduct uh, services open to the public will be required to provide transgender bathrooms. Now, there was an outcry over this, and, and it's been walked back a little bit. But it won't be long the state will decide what is a public service they said so they haven't they haven't moved back from the d- decision what they've said is we're not sure yet what is a public service but we will tell you a service open to the public in october of 2014 the mayor of the city of houston subpoenaed the sermon notes of five pastors with regard to what they might have said uh, over a, a city ordinance uh, with having to do with homosexual marriage, the pastors refused to submit their their uh, sermons uh, to the city, and uh, they were they were countersued, and and uh, the the uh, city of Houston, the mayor uh, pulled back from that. Very recently, in the state of California, there is a bill called SB eleven forty six. You may know about that. SB forty six essentially says that any religious school that takes money from the state of California will be required to, uh, uh, or will be uh, forbidden from discriminating on the basis of religion. I guess that's the best way to say it. That will mean that, should this prevail, that things like compulsory chapel Attendance or mandatory theology classes or, or um, certain you know, dormitory settings and many, many other things will, will no longer be possible or permissible. And in fact, I think if this thing goes through, Christian education, higher education in California is in a very, very perilous place. Christians are being harassed legally. Some of you may have already experienced some of it. I don't know. Those of you involved in public education, I pray for you. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. Soon the gospel will be branded as hate speech. It won't take long. Recently, the University of Cincinnati are now requiring a diversity and inclusion pledge in order to be considered for hire. A diversity and inclusion pledge. That is, you must pledge allegiance to the doctrine of diversity and inclusion as defined by the University of Cincinnati. By the way, the University of Cincinnati receives 63,000 job applicants a year. That's a major employer. It won't be long before the gospel will be pushed aside as hate speech. All that will remain after that is for the for the machine of government to begin to turn and to punish economically and to abuse physically those who will not bow the knee to Caesar. Beloved, this should not surprise us. Sorrow, yes. Even anger at one level, I get it. But it shouldn't surprise us. It has been the history of the people of God for two millennia. Those who have gone before us have experienced far worse than anything we have ever experienced and may ever experience. The blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church, Tertullian said. But that's not all. That's not all. We as a nation and as a member of a global community are on the precipice of the greatest economic collapse the world has ever seen since the fall of the Roman Empire. We have been living as a as a people on credit on borrowed money the proverbs are replete with warnings that the borrower is the slave to the lender I remember in 1979 when I first graduated from college and started working in the banking industry that one of the things that first surprised me was how quickly I became anesthetized to electronic money, digital money. I was just a poor kid, grew up in a country, went to school and got this job at a big bank, and, and we were wire transferring money all over the place and receiving wire transfers all over the place for millions of dollars. And it, and it was just stuff typed into a rudimentary computer in 1979, to be sure. And it would, it's gone, and it arrives. And it wasn't long before I lost a sense of reality to, to what money really is. And here we live now in 2016, and I bet if I were to go around the room, there are very few people in this room who have $100 of currency in your wallet. In fact, I bet there are very few people in this room who have 20 dollars of currency in their wallet. We live with electronic currency, and we're, we're happy with it, and, and I get the conveniences of it, and I do use it. But one of the dangers of electronic currency is, is, is a sense to lose touch with what is real. Have you ever held a1,000 dollars in your hand? How about 10,000 dollars? Have you ever held $10,000 of currency and $100 bills, Benjamins? They come with a band around them, by the way. I think if you did, you would probably be slower to spend it on a car. I have a picture here for you. Yeah, there we go. A little stack in the upper left is a stack of $10,000 in $100 bills. It's about a half an inch thick. To the right of that is a pile of a million dollars in $100 bills, and you can see it, and it's just you know, bigger, a little bit bigger than the guy's two feet. Back to the left again, there's a pallet. That's $100 million in $100 bills. It's a pallet full. To the right of that is $1 billion. And you can see there are, I believe, six pallets full for a billion dollars. But then take a look at that last picture. That last picture is a trillion dollars in $100 bills. And there's a, there's a blow up there because in the far right-hand corner, so teeny-weeny small that you can't hardly see it because two full stacked are taller than the man's head stands a man Stimulation. relation that's a trillion dollars a trillion dollars you keep that image in mind keep that image in mind okay a trillion dollars since 19 or excuse me since 2008 the economic collapse in 2008 global debt has increased by $90 trillion. $90 trillion in, in eight years. In eight years. And it has been able to do that because of the manipulation of the currency by the world's central banks, who are holding interest rates at an, at an incredibly and unsustainably low place. Meaning that the governments are not having to pay virtually any interest on the money they borrow. 90 trillion increase. Worldwide global debt now is somewhere north of $230 trillion. It amounts to about 300% of the total economic output of the entire globe. That means everything is produced on this planet in terms of of wealth in a year. It would take three years to be able to retire that debt, just the principal, not the interest. The U.S. government, that's us. There's a chart there, please. I think visualizes this. This is U.S. government debt. This is the obligations of the taxpayers of the United States of America. It goes back to 1940. You can see that it has gone parabolic. And by the way, that chart ends in the year 2008, where it tops out at, uh, I believe it's $9 trillion. Yeah. Presently... U.S. debt is $19.4 trillion. It has more than doubled in eight years. It is going straight up. U.S. debt now exceeds the GDP, the gross domestic product, the output of the entire economy of the United States. It now stands at almost 106%. Let me just give you some illustration perhaps to try to figure this out. What does it mean? Well, let's think of it this way. Let's say that you had a job and you made $60,000 a year. But you owed on a credit card $65,000. You will never be able to pay it back. You can't. Mathematically, you cannot. We are in a position nationally and, and globally where it is mathematically impossible to pay off the debts that have been accumulated. The Republican presidential uh, nominee, in perhaps a slip of the tongue, or one doesn't know, but he let the cat out of the bag a few weeks ago, speaking to this very thing where he originally said, yeah, we'll default on it. We'll just have to default on it. We can't pay it back. We're just going to have to tell the creditors, sorry, you're going to have to take a haircut. There was a massive outcry. The United States has never defaulted on their debt. We will never default on our debt. And he immediately walked it back and said, yeah, you're right. We won't default on our debt. And I don't think we will. Because default is one option, but I don't believe that that's the option we'll take. In fact, I believe we'll take the option that Alan Greenspan, before, before congressional committee in testimony, where they were, they were inquiring him about the bankrupt status of Social Security. And he said, don't worry. Social security payments are safe. We will never fail to make a social security payment. But what we cannot guarantee is the quality of the money with which we will make the payments. In other words, we will continue to debase the money supply. We will continue to create money out of thin air to meet our obligations. And that's exactly what I believe we will do with the $19.5 trillion of debt. Which, by the way, we're running a deficit every year, so it continues to increase. And this is at near zero interest rates. If interest rates were to return to anywhere near normal numbers of 4 or 5%, interest alone would consume the entire budget. So they will continue to print money. And they will continue to lose its value. And hyperinflation is likely... That's where prices begin to double every day. Oh, that couldn't happen. Oh, yeah. It happens all the time for countries around the world. It's happening in Venezuela right now. An OPEC country. Massive oil reserves. Running at 700% inflation presently. It'll double by the end of the year. Well, but this is the judgment of God. This is the judgment of God upon a humanity who have cut themselves loose from God and, and lived for themselves. Economic promiscuity accompanies sexual promiscuity. It flows out of the same debauched heart. And this is the world we live in. That's the world we live in. According to recent polls, 47% of American households cannot come up with $400 to meet an emergency expense without either borrowing it or selling something. 47%. Now, in a room this big, that means that some of us Now, I don't say this in any way to to try to make anyone feel bad. That's not my point at all. What my point is, is that we are economically fragile. And it's going to be imperative as a body of believers that when the the difficult times come, that we pull together and care for one another. And for those who who are in desperate condition, we need to open our hearts in compassion for them. It'll be the wrong time for a lecture about, oh, you should have saved more. By the way, there is no politician who can fix this. Okay, so let's just get that on the table. There is no politician, I don't care what party they come from, there is no politician that can fix this. It is mathematically impossible. It has gone over the edge. It's going to be a new world. I don't think we're going back into the dark ages, at least I hope not. But it's going to be a new world. And I know people have strong opinions uh, politically, you know, with this person or that person or whatever, and and I get that, and that's fine. But please, let's be careful in our communications with one another about these things, okay? Because uh, the kingdom of God is bigger than a temporal political candidate in their particular positions okay and so you got your persuasions and you got your strong opinions and you're going to vote for this person and you'd never vote for that person and maybe you don't think you ought to vote at all and whatever but let's really be careful let's be careful with facebook okay let's be careful with facebook it's read by a lot of people and it can be very hurtful so just please be careful Martin Luther said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. I like that. Luther had a had a proper perspective grounded in the sovereignty of God. What does it mean? It means that life goes on and it goes on for all of us. And, I, and I'm thrilled for people having babies and keep having babies. They're the future. Keep getting married. Go to work. Buy a home plant a garden, live your life for sure. This is not about, you know, let's all go out on the hillside and, uh, and wait for the return of the Lord. Okay? I mean, this is serious and sober. I, I get it. It is. But I don't know when the Lord's returning, and no one else does. So he calls us to be faithful in the here and the now. So plant your apple tree. Life goes on. The time that I have left, I want to outline for you the the balance of this series. Where am I going with all of this? Okay, so what I have for you here are 11 statements. 11 statements that will characterize the faithful remnant in the last days. Okay, 11 statements to characterize the faithful remnant in the last days. Each of these statements is a sermon title. The first is this. Persecution is our future. Persecution is our future. Second Timothy, you can turn there, please. Second Timothy chapter 3. I had hoped to read 12 scripture passages. I don't know whether I'm going to make it or not. But anyway, we'll begin here. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by odd and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, adequate, equipped for every good work. Beloved, persecution is our future. Second, humility is our character. Humility is our character. First Peter five, and we'll spend a lot of time in First Peter. But First Peter five, the middle of the verse: All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares. For you, First Peter is written to the believers who are scattered because of persecution. Okay. Humility is our character. Hospitality is our practice. Chapter four and verse nine. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hospitality is to be our practice. In a crazy world, truth is our anchor. Truth is our anchor, John 8, 831. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It will make you free. Beloved, we know the truth. We know the truth. And it is the anchor of our soul in all of this. 5. Purity is our pursuit. Purity is our pursuit. In the midst of persecution, purity is our pursuit. Throughout the New Testament, in fact, throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, one thing that is very obvious is that the people of God live by a different sexual ethic. They have a different behavioral code when it comes to the expression of their human sexuality. They stand out. They are very, very different than the world around them. It's one of the distinguishing marks of a follower of Yahweh. So purity is a pursuit of the followers of God. Romans 11 or 13... Romans 13, which is interesting because Romans 13, right, is a discussion about submitting to governmental authorities, and then it follows about paying our taxes, and then it ends the chapter here, and he says, do this. Do what? Well, love one another, pay your taxes, submit to your leaders. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Purity is our pursuit. six. Prayer is our power. Prayer is our power Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse nine. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul prayed for the believers that the power of God would be released in them through the gospel, that they might live as lights in a dark world. Prayer is our power. Seventh, joy is our reputation. I've changed this one, so I changed it this morning. I want to take you to James chapter 1. James 1. Notice it's addressed to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Why were they dispersed abroad? They were dispersed abroad because of persecution. Consider it all joy, verse 2, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy. (laughs) Count it all joy. In the midst of a very difficult situation. Count it all joy. Joy is to be our reputation. What tremendous gospel opportunities will come to us when in the midst of chaos, people say, are you on Valium? <laughs> what? How come you're not coming unglued? Let me talk to you about the Savior. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about eternal life. Let me tell you about how this is all going to end. Joy is to be our reputation. Eight, compassion is our heart. Compassion is our heart. The Spirit of God has, has regenerated us. If he has, if he has removed the heart of stone and, and replaced it with the heart of, of flesh, to use Ezekiel's terminology, if he has written the law on our heart, right, to use Jeremiah's terminology, if we have been born from above, to use Jesus' terminology with Nicodemus this morning, if that has happened to us, then we are a new creation, Paul says. And compassion characterizes that new creation. And that compassion uh, is more than just the empathy that we often feel when we hear about somebody who is in difficult circumstances. Compassion is active. It's active. And so, We go to Acts chapter 4, and we can see just a a glimpse of that kind of compassion, that kind of active care. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We operate a benevolence fund here at Foothill, and it's been... um, through generous people through the years, there's, a, there's a, a sizable amount of money there. But it could be rapidly depleted should economic hardship come upon this congregation, should a number of people in this congregation start to lose their jobs. Through no fault of their own, it would quickly be depleted. And then, our compassion would be tested. Would we give... Would we sell assets? Would we impoverish ourselves, even put our own financial future at risk to care for someone in the here and now? That'll test our faith. That'll test our unity in the Spirit. And, beloved, it'll only happen if the Spirit of God works in us. That's that's a supernatural thing. That's not what normal people do. Normal people take care of their themselves and their families, right? I'm going to take care of my blood. But listen, we are we are united together by something that is way more profound than shared DNA. We are related to one another by the indwelling presence of God Himself. It's going to be tested. May God pour his grace on us through his spirit and the power of prayer that that we meet the test. Compassion is our heart. Nine, discipleship is our priority. Discipleship is our priority, right? Matthew 28, we looked at that in detail. Go into all the world and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Discipleship is our priority. It will remain our priority. Ten. Perseverance is our promise. Perseverance is our promise. (laughs) Doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter what they do to us. We will persevere. Not because of the strength of our own character, not by the force and power of our own right arm. But because God has set his love upon us. And when God sets his love upon you, he never, ever removes it. Ever. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. And, of course, in Romans 8, Paul is wrapping up his incredible exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's talked there about how we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to be made like Jesus Christ. Well, one of the things that's true of Christ is he suffered, isn't it? So we're going to be made like Christ. We are going to know suffering. In fact, I'd be so bold to say you cannot become like Christ without experiencing some measure of suffering. It'll be different for different people. But notice what Paul says. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Listen, if he's given us Christ, he'll give us whatever else we need. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, right, don't worry about tomorrow. That's what the Gentiles do. I will take care of you. I think we may actually learn how to pray earnestly, give us this day our daily bread, huh? That'll be novel. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. Perseverance is our promise. Beloved, we will persevere through this. And last, Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. It doesn't lie here. For that, we are going to go to that 1 Peter passage. Sorry, 2 Timothy is a good one and is relevant. But I want to take you to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. May God give us wisdom. May God continue to pour his mercy upon us. I pray every day for this nation that God would have mercy, that he would not give us what we deserve. May this series together, this exploration of what it means to live as a minority community in a hostile world, May it be used of the Spirit of God to prepare us for whatever lies ahead. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for those that have gone before us, that made the word available to us in our own language through their very blood. Men and women, even boys and girls, who were not so attached to this world and the things of this world that in the face of incredible persecution, they were able to stand firm. Our Father, around the world, even today, there are brothers and sisters who are suffering. There are those who refuse to bend the knee who are persistent and tenacious in their commitment to Christ. And some of them are suffering terribly. Oh, Lord, be their strength, be their hope even in this moment. Be merciful and and grant them the deliverance. And Father, for us, we as a nation, as a people, we have lived in in extravagance for a very long time. We have grown used to it. Our Father confesses that in the face of all that lies ahead of us, there is a real desire to want to run away to the mountains and hide. But Father, you have called us to this place. You have called me to this place. So here we are. And we're not a brave Father, we're not warriors, we're just people. Just men and women, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, grandparents, widows, widowers, singles. Just normal people. Father, we pray that you would work in us something supernatural. that we could be that that lantern on a hill, that light on a hill that stands out. Help us, Father, deepen us in our love for Christ and consequent love for each other. Help us, Father, to, to be quick to forgive one another, not to be bothered by each other's foibles, not to get our nose out of joint or little teeny puny things that mean nothing except our own ego gets hurt. Help us to love like Christ loves. Do something mighty in us. We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.